Hello, this is Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman of Columbia University, and this is Shrink Speak. This is the fourth in a series of podcasts that I've done on the topic of when do you need and how do you find mental health care, or stated more succinctly, when do you need to see a shrink? In the first podcast, I talked about the issue of what is mental illness and what is the stigma that has been obscuring our understanding of it and how to have a better, clearer understanding of what mental disorders are. And the second is, how do you know when you might be suffering from some mental condition that requires medical attention? And then third, the topic was, how do you find a psychiatrist or an appropriate type of mental health care professional to provide information? Today, what I'd like to talk about is an occurrence which is extremely common, even if it's not frequently talked about, which is what do you do when you have a loved one, a family member, a close friend, or even an intimate coworker whom you are concerned about in terms of their behavior that looks like it may be related to some mental disturbance and they don't seem to be getting help on their own. Now, this is a very common occurrence even though it's not something you would necessarily hear people talk about often like, oh, You know, I can't get my mother to go see somebody and she's become so forgetful or she's so depressed or, you know, my uh, husband is drinking too much and he's using too much of a recreational drug Um, or that, you know, my child is acting bizarrely or he's gotten into some very strange cults and things like that. This is something that happens very commonly and people are either reticent or aren't sure exactly what to do to try and intercede and provide some kind of corrective direction or assistance. Now, if this were something that was non-behavioral or non-mental, our reactions would be very simple. So if you have a spouse who's been having a recurring cough and it's gone on for weeks and they haven't Maybe gone to see the doctor or done anything to get it diagnosed and, uh, and treated, or if they've developed a limp or some type of uh, physical impediment that's affecting their ability to ambulate, or if they've had a pain they've been complaining about, chest pain, stomach pain, indigestion that persists for a long period of time, they don't seem to be doing anything, you would ordinarily say, you know, I notice you've been coughing or, you know, that... Uh, discomfort you've been feeling in your, in your stomach. Um, have you, you know, do you have any idea what it's caused by? You've been having other symptoms. Maybe you should see a doctor. So it's pretty straightforward what one would do. But if somebody's acting strangely or acting different or getting too often intoxicated, there's not a clear sort of path of how one expresses their concern and intercedes in that case. Because you're, you're treading on kind of touchy ground. Not that we should be reticent, but I think many people are. And so if you do see changes in a behavior or aspects of a person's behavior that are inconsistent with their environmental situation or things that are just clearly abnormal, uh, meaning bizarre, strange, extreme, potentially self-injurious, then of course you would want to say something. And you would say, you know, what's the matter? Is something bothering you? Or you've been doing this? And depending on the response, you know, you might recommend that it would be useful for them to get some professional attention to evaluate uh, the basis of the problem. What frequently occurs, though, particularly with mental disorders, 
is that unlike if somebody is having chest pain or unlike if somebody's you know, developed a problem with their knee, which limits their ability to, to, to run or to, to walk, when a person has a problem with their behavior, their mental functioning, uh, meaning some aspect of the brain that's mediating those functions, they're not able to exercise the same judgment to self-observe and to self-evaluate. And as a result of that, they may not think anything's wrong. Or even if they do appreciate that something is wrong, um, they're not acknowledging that it may be due to an illness. They may think that it's due to some purposeful change that's occurred or that belief system that they've entered into. And this reflects one of two predominant things, cognitively speaking. It reflects either that they're in denial of what they're experiencing and what's being observed by other people in the family or in their social network, or they're lacking insight into what's bothering them because you know, they're not able to observe with the same organ of the body that needs to make judgments that's been disturbed by whatever the ailment is. Now, if this is a case where somebody's having mild symptoms, you know, they seem to be kind of blah and uh, blue and sad and uninterested, unmotivated, or they seem to be a little bit you know, nervous and uh, on edge all the time, or you know, they are kind of a worrier and obsessing about things, even though it may seem like it's different, even though it may seem problematic, even it may seem like it's distressing them, but it's not that serious, uh, well, okay, you can encourage them to do something about it, but if they don't, then it's their choice to endure what may be these you know, low-level symptoms of some condition. It's the same thing if somebody has gastric reflux and they don't want to go see the doctor, they'll just tolerate it and take antacids. Or somebody has a bum knee, but instead of going to see somebody, they're willing to basically curtail their, not play tennis or just go play doubles or not go on hikes or not stop jogging. Or you know, if they're developing symptoms of diabetes and they don't want to take care of themselves by watching their diet and losing weight, that's their choice. That's their right to self-determination. But if the situation gets worse, where their symptoms bring them to a point where they're at risk for harm, they're so depressed that they're not even getting out of bed to go to work, they're not attending to their daily hygiene, or their appetite is impaired, they're not eating, or they may be you know, food restricting for some type of you know, food or weight compulsion, or they're so anxious and frightened that they won't go out of the house, or they're becoming consumed by bizarre thoughts. The CIA is monitoring my behavior. The neighbors are listening to me through the walls. Uh, aliens are visiting me at night. And these symptoms start to suggest that the individual could be at harm from one thing or another, either self-inflicted or because of the fact they're not eating, drinking, caring for themselves adequately, then this becomes a greater concern and it raises the question of how do you overcome their resistance to seeking care and uh, whether they are in denial, whether they don't have insight or whether they are believing the disturbances in their thinking. Now the worst situation comes up when somebody is so severely affected that they could be dangerous and they're at risk for harming themselves, or their symptoms might impel them to hurt other people. And there's many examples of this. I mean, all of the 
or a great many of the mass violent incidents that occur, Jared Loeffner in Arizona with shooting Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords, uh, James Holmes going into a theater for the Batman movie premiere and shooting people, the Washington Navy Yard slaying of Navy service people by uh, Aaron Alexis, who was clearly psychotic, the Virginia Tech example. You know, these are examples of individuals who were ill, impelled by their symptoms, hurt other people because those symptoms weren't being treated. So there's a continuum of severity of symptoms relating to need for care, which when you are observing this and a family member, friend, colleague, sort of places a certain level of responsibility in terms of how can you help them to get the attention that they need. And the issue here is that our country is founded on a principle of self-determination, personal autonomy, and individual rights, and it doesn't allow us to infringe upon somebody's rights unless things get really ex extreme to the point that they're going to hurt themselves or others. But that's a difficult judgment to make until it's gotten to the point where they've actually done something. I face this all the time in my clinical practice. I get many calls, uh, I would say at least three a month, of situations where you have individuals whose family members, whether they're children, adult children, spouses, relatives, who are extremely impaired, are not recognizing this, are not willing to do anything about it, and the caller is asking, what can I do? And the legal mechanism only comes into play when somebody is at that extreme level where they're verging on self-harm or dangerousness. But in the meantime, a lot of bad things can happen in terms of non-productivity, in terms of individuals who are basically wasting you know, their productive lives uh, by being incapacitated and unwilling to get help for it. Let me give you a couple of examples just to illustrate this. One such situation was reflected by a family that called prominent, educated, professionally successful. They have a 26-year-old son. He's been living alone, subsidized by them. He lost his job. He has symptoms of mania with delusional thinking, believing that he's extraordinarily talented and the world is really uh, waiting for him to produce his next amazing contribution, which, of course, has never come, and he's not willing to do anything. And they have faced with a choice, do I cut off his subsidizing his rent? Do I stop paying for his food? He won't go to see anybody. And even if he does go to see somebody, that person won't talk to me unless they give him permission because of the HIPAA laws. Okay, uh, that's fine. He's wasting his life because he's impaired and doesn't realize it. The family's having to subsidize him. Uh, nobody's getting hurt, so he has his right to do so. No help from the medical profession, no help from you know, legal mechanisms. Families have to endure that. Another instance is where you have somebody who's at a more extreme end, where they are uh, expressing intent on hurting somebody. Now, there you can potentially invoke a legal mechanism, you know, call the police, call the FBI if it has some kind of terroristic implications, call the Secret Service if it has anything to do with, you know, political figures or the president. But these are really heavy-handed stormtrooper-type things that are really be traumatic if you had implemented. And then they force the family to have to take 
be the petitioners to have the person committed. There's got to be a better way, but there isn't, at least in terms of prescribed remedies. A more common thing is, is that somebody suffers from depression, anxiety, substance abuse, hoarding, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and they don't want to seek help. They're not so bad that any kind of uh, you know, legal infringement on their civil rights is uh, indicated, and they're not harming themselves and they're functioning at some minimal level in order to be able to, to, to take care of themselves. And this happens very frequently. Their lives waste away. Uh, they're you know, intractable in terms of seeking care, no matter what you do. So my recommendations in such situations is, is that you're not always going to be able to be you know, your brother's keeper and do what's the best for them, but you should try. And trying means you have to identify a source of mental health care. You have to try and encourage them directly. And if that doesn't work, then try and use alternative means to persuade, inveigle, get them to see somebody, even if it means that you're having a problem and would they come with you to see this doctor in order to enable the doctor to get a better understanding of your problem. Or I've even gone to the extent of suggesting that people meet on a ostensible social engagement, have lunch with somebody. It's not a doctor's appointment. You're going to have lunch. Now, this requires cooperation on the part of the, the mental health professional, but it's really trying to push the envelope to find ways to make the initial contact in the hope that that will at least break the ice and enable the person to have a positive interaction and see the value of continuing. If you're able to do that, then the question is, is if treatment is administered, whether it's medication, whether it's psychotherapy, that there is some improvement or alleviation in the symptoms that enable the person to gain some degree of insight or realization as to what they may have been suffering from before and that it's actually beneficial for them to continue in treatment. Now, Unfortunately, the success rate is, is sort of unpredictable with these things. And even if you do get somebody either through commitment or through some type of encouragement or, 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 or scheme to engage with the mental health professional and to begin treatment, even after they improve, they may stop and they could relapse. And this is something which happens recurrently, unfortunately, also. But the, the point is, is that there has to be a concerted and, in many ways, sort of a varied and creative effort to encourage and get the person who you care about and feel needs help into some treatment setting or some engagement with the mental health professional. And the mental health profession is not sufficiently flexible or accommodating as it should be in terms of being on what basis it's willing to meet people. Home visits, social settings, and so forth. As I said, I basically encourage people to sort of abandon sort of the traditional manner of engagement where necessary to find a way to get people into treatment. And it's necessary to make all these efforts, to do them at times unconventionally, and to, to persist in them. There does come a time when it just proves to be futile. And uh, unfortunately, I've faced this sort of many times in my life where you see that despite your best efforts, you're not able to do this, and it's only when some crisis happens 
that this is going to change a person's behavior and enable you to bring them to some healthcare setting. Hopefully that's something that doesn't happen often, is avoidable, but you know, the reality is, is that it will. The bottom line is, is that when you observe people who you care about, who do seem to be in need for some reason, don't be timid or inhibited about reaching out, inquiring, and encouraging them to seek care. Two, if they're reluctant to, either through denial, lack of insight, or any other reasons, then persist in trying to think of ways in which you can bring them to some engagement with proper mental health care professional. And it may require having dialogue with the mental health care professional beforehand to explain the situation and by what means you can arrange for their interaction. And three, persist in this process. Don't give up. Continue. And the, I think, boundary conditions are one, when it becomes dangerous, or two, when you've just persisted so long that you can't maintain or sustain the effort and you need to essentially wait until a person hits bottom, so to speak, and other forces intervene to enable them to seek care. The other solution to this is, and it's a more of a policy solution than personal advice, is that we change our policies and mechanisms for abridging civil liberties. Now, this sounds heavy-handed, but the reality is, is that if you go to a place like San Francisco or in other places where you see homeless people wandering around, you see what the consequences of having you know, too liberal, too progressive, too much of a, a waiting an individual liberty versus the societal good occurring. If you go to other countries in the world, particularly in Western Europe, which is comparable to the United States, you don't see the same kind of situation we have with the homeless. And as for people suffering in their apartments, well, they may suffer in their homes, they may suffer in silence, but it's not to an extreme that it's causing disruption or harm to other people. So it's not an easy situation to confront. It's very common, so I think there's a high likelihood you will experience it in some fashion in the course of your life. And my advice to you is to be vigilant to not be constrained from taking action and being proactive and encouraging people to seek help and to then uh, feel that you know, you're really justified in being assertive, persistent, and creative in finding ways to get them. In the long run, even if you have just a few successes with the individuals that you care about that you feel are, are so afflicted, it'll be worth it because it can be life-changing. So good luck with this. Thank you for listening. I hope this four-part podcast series has been helpful. This is Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman of Columbia University for Shrink Speak. Mm-hmm.